Hi and welcome back to Police Stories Podcast. I'm Dave and this is uh, episode number five, I believe, of our podcast series or my podcast series. Just some short stories about my career in the police force in the UK and some of the incidents I've dealt with. Hopefully there'll be some variety in here. This one this week is slightly different. Um, so we're going to talk about a bit more of the investigation side of things uh, and also a bit of a, a turning point for me in terms of perhaps my mindset and even really how I viewed life and uh, all will become clear as we go through, uh, possibly not necessarily in a good way, but um, see what you think. So uh, working on a shift again on the response team, answering the 999 calls and one evening we get called to reports of a, a disturbance outside um, it was a kebab shop and this was in a small sort of parade of shops near a major train station that went into London. So on a weekend could be very busy with people initially heading up to London and then in the early hours coming back from a night out in London. So it was quite renowned for a lot of sort of drunkenness and fighting and that sort of thing. So this call comes in that there's a disturbance outside the kebab shop. Somebody might be injured. As ever, you get two or three calls. They're all quite confused. Um, they're all suggesting something different so it's it's fairly chaotic and basically until you get there you don't really know what you're going into you know some of the most serious calls I've ever been to started off as really low level oh I think there's something suspicious you know, and you get there and it's horrendous and likewise you get lots of calls that say you know ridiculous things there's 200 people fighting outside this pub so you go in there thinking my god you know there's only two of us here we can have real problems if this is true and you turn up and there's you know a couple of people shoving each other in the chest and there's maybe 25 watching, you know. So again, you just, you can't really sort of uh, uh, guess what you're going into. You get a bit of a steer, obviously, from the phone calls, but you just can't put too much on it till you actually turn up. Uh, and early days in your career, you know, you learn that quite quickly. Um, so we're en route to this, this call at the kebab shop, disturbance, turn up. And there's uh, certainly quite a few people milling around. There's no obvious fight straight away. There's maybe half a dozen, perhaps 10 people uh, sort of hanging around outside this place. No one's, I think we were the first car there. There was maybe two or three police cars turn up with a, a couple of cops in each. No one's making themselves known. No one's running up to you to sort of say something terrible's happened. And there was a few people, drunken people, basically standing around sort of eating kebabs, as you might expect of, a, of I think it was a Friday sort of evening into the early hours. Um, and then there's this one guy standing off to our side and he was facing away from us uh, and I was thinking what a messy eater he was because he was, I thought, eating a kebab facing away from us and I could see that there was kind of tomato sauce and or chilli sauce or something like that kind of falling on the ground below him and, and spilling out uh, and I was just thinking what a messy eater he was uh, naively at this point uh, and he turns around and I realised that he had this terrible face injury that the side of his cheek was basically opened up from almost up by his ear, right across one of his cheeks, down to towards his chin. So he had quite a neat slash down his chin. And actually, uh, every time he was talking or even breathing, his cheek was kind of flapping open and blood was kind of spraying out and pouring out. And this is what I'd seen uh, that I thought, you know, was, was kind of some sort of chilli sauce or something to start with. So obviously we rushed over to him. Um, I think by this point, a friend of his had some uh, horrendous, dirty tissue he probably picked off the floor and was trying to hold up to his cheek, which, you know, I dread to think what sort of infection that was putting into him. Anyway, we all carried kind of 
basic first aid kits and we were able to get a, quite a decent pad and, and hold over his face. We called for an ambulance. Uh, this guy was drunk, you know, seemingly not in pain, just more incensed that someone had done this to him. So we're trying to establish what happened. And it's funny, drunken people kind of want to go over and over and repeat things. Normally the most, you know, uh, sort of the, the thing that's not important at all. So I think this guy was going on and on and how he was going to miss his train. You know, he needs to get his train and just focused on this train. And, you know, had he been sober and seen in the mirror, he'd have been a lot more concerned about his cheek, trust me. But uh, anyway, so we were basically convincing him he needs to go to hospital. We'd called an ambulance, they turned up and we're quite near the major hospital at this point. So within about five minutes or so, the ambulance was there, held, uh, pretty much held his cheek together with this pad and then the ambulance crew take over. And there's there's always a certain amount of relief when you hand, you know, uh, someone who's injured over to the ambulance because we have, you know, very basic first aid skills, but obviously the ambulance crews are the experts. So it's it's always nice to be supported in that way. So obviously now we've got to try and find out who's done this. Again, there's no one kind of making themselves known. There's no witnesses saying he did it, etc. So we go into the kebab shop, we start doing some basic, what we call, you know, house to house inquiries, sort of knocking on a few doors, um, just in case anyone's seen anything. Um, in these days, don't forget, there wasn't really kind of ring doorbells. Um, premises, businesses had CCTV. Invariably, it was horrendous quality. It was clunky, blocky footage where, quite frankly, you know, it could have been an alien as much as a person, you know, sort of doing anything. So they weren't a lot of good, but sometimes you got lucky and they were okay. Invariably, you know, it was also videos those days, videos, cassettes. So none of it was was great. So we knocked on a few doors, we spoke to a few people, very few people were going to sort of speak to us and tell us what was going on. Spoke to one of the guys in the kebab shop, because that was where a phone call came from originally. And sure enough, he pointed out this guy in a white top that was on the periphery of the crowd that was out there. I say crowd, you know, there's maybe 10 or 15 people now, uh, because there's blue lights and stuff. So you get your rubberneckers come across to see what's going on. Um, and this guy in the white top was just kind of drifting away gradually on the edge. He wasn't running off, he wasn't... Uh, you know, in a terrible hurry to get away, but he was definitely sort of distancing himself and, and slowly moving away. The kebab shop owner sort of pointed to him and said, 100%, that's the guy that did it. I saw it, no problems at all. And this guy was willing to give us a statement because a lot of the time, you know, you get people say, oh, I saw this or whatever, but I'm not giving you a statement. I don't want to go to court. I'm not going to be a witness and stuff. And you can't always make them. And sometimes there are certain laws where you can kind of force people to speak to you and give evidence. But again, not really at this time. So anyway, myself and my colleague go out, run after this guy, get hold of him, and he's calm as you like. He's had a drink, he's not drunk, um, and uh, he says, you know, no, I just bought a kebab, I was here, but, you know, I wasn't really, I wasn't involved, you know, I didn't see what happened. I'm, I saw, you know, somebody in the ambulance, I take it, somebody was injured, and he was all very reasonable, you know, playing down that he'd had any role at all. He was absolutely sort of convinced of that. But we, he had 100% been identified to us as the guy responsible. So even though I thought possibly I'm getting the wrong man here, you know, the witness was so sure it was him, you can't afford to let him wander off because if this is our man, then, you know, we, can't, we have to do something. So, so basically he got arrested for assault and uh, he was, again, perfectly calm about this, as most people are, to be honest with you. You know, it's, it's not that often that people go crazy when they're arrested, which sometimes, uh, you know, surprises people. And a lot of time people are in shock, you know, they've never had anything to do with the police. The fact that police are even talking to them, let alone actually putting hands on, arresting them, maybe handcuffing them, is a real shock to people. So you'd be surprised, that, you know, 
quite often arrests are very boring and calm. Uh, so this guy gets uh, you know put into the police car. We drive him back to the police station. He turns up at custody, and then basically present him to the custody sergeant. You explain the circumstances in front of the guy why he's been arrested, and then the custody sergeant makes a decision as to whether he thinks that's a lawful arrest or not. And then um, from there, you would uh, search them, take their property off them. Um, and then at this point on the telly, certainly in the UK, everyone says, I know what my rights, I've got the right to a phone call, I can make a phone call and all the rest of it. It's not actually quite true. That's how it's portrayed on the UK telly. But the reality is what you get is the right for someone to be notified you're in custody. So the custody sergeant, for example, can ring a person of your choosing, so a partner or a mum and dad or whoever, and just say, look, we've got Joe Bloggs in custody, he's been arrested, that's it, that's all they'll say, uh, and that's all they get. However, in reality, if someone, especially if they're being a pain or they're particularly upset or they're very drunk or whatever, and you think it would just ease the situation, in some scenarios, custody sergeants will say, look, here's the phone, have a quick word with wife, mum, dad, brother, whoever it is. Um, tell them what the score is. You know, I'll give you a couple of minutes. Uh, as long as you don't go speaking in code or, you know, a language we don't understand, I'll let you have your say. Obviously, in some cases, you couldn't do that because what you don't want is if you're about to go and do a drugs warrant or their address, them to tell them, I've been arrested, flush all the gear down the loo. You know, that's not going to happen. So anyway... Our man gets put in the cell and we go off and we prepare for interview. So I've done a couple of very low level interviews at this point. Now, what we left a kebab shop owner in trying to sort out his CCTV. He thought he had it maybe um, on tape, you know, recorded the actual incident, which also would be brilliant. Um, but we weren't hopeful because invariably they come back and go, it wasn't recording, it didn't work and have various reasons why it's no good. So... The thought was we would crack on and do an initial interview, get an initial account of this guy. And if needs be, we could um, then re-interview. You know, we didn't have to release. Uh, certainly initially in England and Wales here, you get 24 hours after someone's been arrested to keep them in custody. Although you can't just do it willy-nilly. You can't bring them in, put them in custody, decide, oh, well, we'll go and have some food and a cup of tea and we'll, you know, we'll do this and we'll do that and then we'll go back to them. You know, you have to actually be actively making some efforts in the investigation. Um, and again, you can't just go off and leave them for hours with nothing happening. You can go off if you're going to get statements or, you know, see CCTV or something like that. But there has to be a certain amount of urgency within those 24 hours. Now, you can actually go on to get that extended as well. Initially, you can ask a higher ranking officer whether you can extend it and then you can go on to the courts and apply for extensions. And I think the maximum is 96 hours, although in counter-terrorism uh, cases, they can be longer again. Um, so it does vary. And I might, I might not have those details absolutely 100% because it's quite a complicated area and it has changed as well since then. So, But that's, that's the gist of it anyway. 24 hours is the standard in England and Wales um, for your initial investigation. So anyway, we decide we're going to go get this guy for interview. So I'd done a couple of little interviews, but nothing like this. This was quite a serious case. This really was probably going to eventually pass to to CID, our detectives, the criminal investigation department. But because it was the early hours and they weren't available, the thought was we would do the initial interview. So you have some training when you're going through your police training college about the theory of interviews and they talk about, and they go into quite a lot of detail about 
things like um, NVCs, non-verbal communication, so body language, you know, people crossing their arms and being defensive. And you do a certain amount of work about, all oh, when people look left, they're using one side of the brain, and when they look up, they're recalling something they've seen. And it's all very well and good, but um, it's quite difficult for your average cop, particularly when you're dealing with drunk people, you know, that may have a drug issue, for example. They don't necessarily act in a way that you'd expect. So the, the theory is nice and it's interesting to know, but unless you're an expert and you've got time to sit there and study their every move, it perhaps doesn't give you everything. So we get our man an interview and at the time it was two tapes and a big clunky tape machine. You press the button, there's this very long beep that leads into it. And then you ask them their basic details, name, date of birth, um, address, etc. perhaps. Um, and then really what you're looking to do initially is... Um, you, you just want their first account. So you start off very basic and you're, you're not challenging, you're not questioning, you're literally saying, look, you've been arrested tonight for this assault down outside the kebab shop. What can you tell me about that? Nice open question to start with, lead them into something. Now at this point, quite often they can, you know, they can either kind of spill their guts and go on for the next hour in great detail about what they have or haven't done. Other times they're kind of like, well, nothing really, you know, and you get very little back. At the time... Although you could choose to be silent and not necessarily answer, at the time we were able to put in a special warning and then the court could, what they call, draw an inference from why they decided not to comment or not to answer the questions, i.e. the jury, if it went to a jury trial, could decide they thought this person was hiding something and that's why they chose not to say anything in an interview. Now, the law has changed again in the UK so actually, they now have a right to silence. And what you'll see time and time again on all the UK kind of crime dramas and also, you know, the sort of real life stuff is that people just simply answer no comment. So again, you had all this interview training about, oh, let them run and do this and do that. And you say to them, tell me about this incident. And they just go, no comment. And that's it. You still have to put questions to them. So you'd still go through maybe a dozen questions about, did you do this? Did you do that? And you'll still get no comment. But you have to go through the motions. But at the time, yeah... Um, if they didn't answer, if they chose to not say anything, they got the special warning that if you continue with this, um, the court or the jury may decide, they may draw an inference and make their own minds up as to why they think you are um, choosing not to say anything or not to answer my questions. But that wasn't the case with this guy. He was free to talk. Like I say, he'd had a drink. We could interview people that had a drink as long as they weren't drunk. You clearly can't interview someone who's blind drunk. Um, or very, you know, high on drugs or something, because clearly, you know, firstly, you're going to get absolute gobbledygook out of them. And it's, you know, it's never going to hold up in a court. So there was no point in that case, they'd be maybe bedded down for a few hours before you uh, started, you know, to sober up. But in this case, no, it wasn't wasn't a thing. He'd had a couple of drinks, you could smell alcohol on him, but he wasn't drunk by any means. And he was quite happy to speak about his involvement. So he detailed, well, I'd been out with my friends and we've been into town, we've been to a club, we've been to a bar or whatever, come here for a bit of food. Um, and nothing really happened. You know, I had my kebab, I was aware, maybe something happened, but I didn't really see it. It was all very vague, you know. Um, and then we were kind of walking away and then you, you know, you wrongfully arrested me. I had nothing to do with anything. He pled his innocence, you know, and you got hold of me and, uh, and that was that. So I was thinking at this point, um, I, I think we've got the wrong guy. You know, I mean, it was a lawful arrest. He'd been pointed out as 100% the person involved, but I was pretty sure we had got the wrong person. Um, he was very clear. So initially you get this first account and you literally just make notes. And what you're doing is you're trying to trip them up. So they say, 
well, I went out with friends and I did this and I did that. And what sort of time was that? Well, it was here and it was then. And so you're taking all as much detail as you can. Then there'd be a sort of clarification stage. So you'd maybe come back and say, so you said you went out at this time. Just to check that was with your friend, you know, Gary. That's right. Yeah. You know, so again, you're just picking up details and making sure 100% you've got all the details. And now as you're uh, going through it, you're then looking, you might move on to the challenging stage. So you might know a certain amount of information. You also might be able to prove that stuff is wrong. But don't forget, he's now recording in saying, yeah, I went out at this time, I went out at that time, I went out with Gary, you know. So you've got the ability now, if you know a certain amount of information, to go back and start saying, look, you said you went out with Gary, but actually um, you weren't with Gary, you were with so-and-so, whatever, you know, and that's not a very good example. But anyway, you can get into this challenging phase. I always enjoyed interviewing. Some people really didn't like it because it meant thinking on your feet quite quickly and having to formulate plans and change directions mid-interview because you couldn't really lose the flow of the interview and just stop. Um, but I always quite enjoyed the sort of fast-moving thinking about it. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought I was, or I believe I'm quite good at talking to people. So, uh, I, yeah, I think interviews were, were quite good. I used to quite enjoy them. But anyway, this guy, absolutely not him, not involved, very clear. We got the wrong person wasn't funny about it, wasn't aggressive about it, just simply said that was it and was actually quite a likeable guy, you know. Um, and certainly I believed him. So that was that. So finished the interview, he gets put back in a cell and we head back down to the kebab shop, uh, hoping that we're going to be able to get some more evidence. Amazingly, and this was pretty rare, the guy, the owner of the shop was able to say, yeah, I was right. I have got it on CCTV. So I proudly handed us this video and said, it's on there, clear as day, you know, so you can see it. So we were like, great. So we get hold of the video, we head back to, and I'm going to say the Nick, which again is a bit of a, a nickname for the police station. Again, in certainly in England and particularly down south, you'd call the office the Nick. We're heading back to the Nick. Um, and in the UK, you're probably aware that certainly when people are arrested, quite often they get nicked. You know, that's the saying. So uh, this guy had been nicked and we'd taken him to the Nick. And, and you'll hear that sort of reference quite a bit from me and, and probably various other places. So we go back to the Nick and we view this video. And at the time it was on a clunky square, you know, video and TV combined, probably like a 14 inch small thing that you're all crowded around this tiny screen. And we, we look at this video and sure enough, it was actually really quite good quality, quite clear. And what it did show to my amazement was our man absolutely bangs right. And what he'd done is, and uh, it, you know, it was horrific on a couple of levels, but but it really got me thinking and actually got me quite enraged is too strong a word, but I was really quite put out. This guy had absolutely bareface lied to my face and I was really pissed off with him, quite frankly. We watched the video and what happened was there's a bit of an altercation, there's a bit of pushing and shoving, there's obviously an argument between groups outside the kebab shop. And then our man, Mr. Liar, has basically undone the leather belt from around his waist. He's pulled it out. This guy, I think, had shoved him in the chest, the one who ended up getting injured. Um, he backed off our man. He took off his belt from around his waist. He wrapped the leather belt around his hand, leaving about a, maybe a three-foot, you know, sort of free-running piece of leather with the very large, sharp belt buckle on the end. And he swung it into this guy's face as a weapon. And only once... And, you know, it was probably a fluke and very unlucky for the guy that he even made contact, you know, bearing in mind everyone had been drinking and the pushing and shoving in crowds, etc. 
and it had hit this guy across his face. And whether it was the part of the buckle or, or the pin that goes in the hole, I don't know, but some part of it, you know, which was obviously sharp and had been uh, swung with quite some force, had caught this guy across the face and opened up his cheek into this this terrible injury that we talked about earlier. So uh, there he was, you know, there was absolutely no denying it. And as I, I just couldn't believe that he'd been such a convincing liar. So we got him back out of the cells and we put him back into interview. And we said to him, look, we've now viewed the CCTV. We know what happened. This is your opportunity to tell the truth. You tell us what has gone on. But bearing in mind, we've got it on CCTV. So you tell us your account and you might want to change your story. You know, this is kind of how it went on. Sure enough, he still sat there. No, I'll still say you got the wrong person. It wasn't me. I had no involvement. And I just couldn't believe that this guy, even though, you know, we've made it very clear to him whether he thought we were lying about the evidence. I don't know. Um, he was just continuing with this. It wasn't him involved. So we basically had to, there was a little uh, video player in the room. We were able to put the video in front of him and play the video. And of course, there it was, you know, there was no denying it. And as soon as he saw it, as he was watching this very clear evidence of him committing this offence, this smile came across his face and he sort of chuckled to himself. So once we'd shown it to him, we stopped the video and I said, what have you got to say about that then? And he sort of shrugged his shoulders, carried on with his smile and said, well... You've got to give it a go, haven't you? You know, of course it was me, but I thought, you know, might better get away with it. So just stuck with the story. And he basically totally admitted it then because he had no choice, really, let's face it. Um, and I just couldn't believe it. It was it was a real turning point. Now, you're probably all sitting there thinking, well, you're a cop. Of course you're going to get lied to. And you're right. that That is true. However, you have to remember, you know, I was very new Um Still at this point, you know, it was fairly fluffy and believed in rainbows and unicorns, you know. Um, and in all the TV shows, you know, the cops don't get lied to, you know, and they get the truth and all the rest of it. So this was 100% the first time that I absolutely knew um, that I had been completely lied straight to my face. He looked me in the eye, you know, told 100% lie direct to my face. And I was really quite shocked and it probably sounds silly you know but but honestly I was and it was a real turning point for me because um from then on basically I never believed anyone again in my job or I have to say in my private life ask my kids you know when I asked them who'd knocked over the drink or whatever and they were kind of you know not me my absolute kind of default position was everyone was lying to me and until I proved they weren't they were you know Whereas before that, it had always been the other way around. You know, I took people at face value and if they told me they hadn't done something, I believed them, you know, but this this was a real change for me. Um, so, yeah, it was, as I say, possibly not surprising to any of you, but it, but it certainly was to me, you know, and it was a real turning point. So, of course, sure enough, this guy, he got, um, he got charged with uh, what we call a, a GBH, a grievous bodily harm. It was a serious assault. This guy ended up with... Um, quite a few stitches, I think it was like 10 or 15 stitches in his cheek. Although it always surprised me what a good job, you know, um, doctors could do or medical types could do because the injury I'd seen had been terrible later on when I'd got a statement from the guy about what had happened and he'd been stitched up. You know, there was just this really neat little thin line on his cheek that was almost certainly going to heal quite well and not end up with, um, you know, very little scarring either probably because he was quite young. Um, particularly if he chose to uh, grow a beard or something, you know. So, 
Yeah, um, no, not a massive incident in, in terms of general policing, but yeah, a definite um, one that I really remember for, you know, for say what may be a, a silly reason to you guys and girls, you know, but but that's how it was. My my first time of being absolutely lied to my face and I say it really changed how I viewed the world and how I dealt with people, um, possibly not for the better, but that's what the job does to you. You know, it, it does change you and can... Um, certainly harden off your mindset but also make you see the world possibly for a, a darker place you know and it always ruins a town when you work there as well I've lived in towns that I've worked in and um, I've lived in towns prior to joining the police you know and then have gone back there to work as a cop and originally people say oh so and so is a nice town that's a really nice place to live um, and you believe that as well having worked and lived there maybe gone to school there then you go and work in the police there and you realize that every single town has its issues, you know, and it has this sort of hardcore group of 10 or 20 sort of serious criminals that are the housebreakers, the burglars, the drug dealers, the assaulters, you know, and there's actually a guarantee, even in the smallest town, no matter where you are in the world, unfortunately, you may not know it, thankfully, and perhaps be grateful you don't, you know, and you walk around not realising quite what's going on, but unfortunately it is there and it is going on. But the police opens your eyes to it and you see it. So you never quite see a town in the same way once you've worked in it. But uh, there we go. So a little bit different that one. Hopefully it was interesting. Uh, please continue to uh, to come back and listen once a week. I'll try and put out another one. Uh, kind of like and subscribe and follow and all those various things. Just out of interest, I have started a YouTube channel as well. I've cunningly called it Police Stories Podcast. Um, you can find it on YouTube, although actually even putting in those words directly, Police Stories Podcast, is quite difficult to find on YouTube because there is a, quite a few out there, you know. But I've used the same photo, so perhaps you'll be able to pick it up uh, when you do a search, if you do a search. Now, I realise you're probably listening to this on one of the normal sort of podcast places, so you don't want to necessarily listen to it on YouTube, but... What it does do is give you the ability to maybe make comments or ask a question. If you genuinely, you know, wanted to know something, I'll try and answer it if I can. And or just give me some feedback or by all means, come on and abuse me. I don't care. You know, I'm fairly used to it. Um, just gives you an opportunity to, to say something or ask a question if you want to, because obviously I'm doing these podcasts having never really done it before. And I have no clue, apart from the fact that perhaps a few people are downloading it and, and more and more with each week, it seems. So that's good. But yeah, I don't really know kind of what you think, basically. So just, you know, put a comment on there and let me know what you think. Um, be interesting, certainly from my point of view. So yeah, please stories podcast on YouTube. By all means, go on and add a comment or a question. Okay, thanks very much for listening. I'll speak to you again next week. Take it easy. Cheers. Bye.